0: Uh, again. let's. I want you to stand to your feet as we welcome uh, Captain, uh, the captain. He said, I'm not a captain anymore and his wonderful wife, um, Hoodie. God has raised them up for a time such as this and we want to honour you sir, honour you and your wife, honour you and thank God for who you mean and what you do for our nation. Thank you. God bless you. Wow! Can you hear me? You can hear me. A lot of people have been hearing me lately. (laughs) It's really scary. I don't pray looking down anymore because I think Jesus wants us to pray looking up. So Lord Father in heaven, as I speak to a beautiful congregation of people who just love you and need to know you, I pray that your words will be spoken. I pray that your heart will be visible. And I pray that you will take us to a better place in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Michelle said to me on the way here, just before we pulled up, have you got a plan what you're going to talk about? And I said, "Nah." (laughs) And she says to me, when we drive to a rally, have you got a plan of what you're going to talk about? And I say, "Nah." (laughs) And... um, Sometime, every time I sit down and try and prepare something, I end up messing it up. So um, I just pray that uh, Jesus will speak through me. And um, when I pray about all these kinds of things, one of the big questions I ask him is, Why me? And I think for you to understand why I ask that question, you need to understand a little bit about where I came from. Because it was 16 years ago that I was um, an atheist. I was lost in a very deep pornography addiction. I had everything in my life to make me look happy, to make me look well-adjusted and healthy. I had the the fancy house and the fancy toys, the superannuation scheme, what looked like a, a very normal, beautiful family. And yet I had an emptiness inside me that nothing would ever fill, nothing. I tried to fill it with all manner of things and it didn't work. I tried going to New Age seminars, they didn't work. They worked for a little while. A new car would make me happy for a week. A boat would make me happy for a week. A new power tool would make me happy for an hour. But nothing filled what I was aching to find. And as I lost my identity completely in atheism, I drifted into a place where I just didn't want to be around anymore. And I felt that the whole world would be better off if I wasn't. I wanted to end my life and um, I set a date to do that, it was the 18th of August 2006 and it was a time that I'd set a date for because it was an anniversary that, um, that I was reminded of by my wife often when she said it was the anniversary of the first time that we met and it was the worst day of her life. And um, I was living in a a painful place where I actually wanted to take my own life to teach my ex-wife a lesson. Only Satan takes you to a place like that. Do you agree? Only Satan takes you there. So there I was in this awful place and hastening to that day with glee in my heart that I would soon be rid of all this and I would soon be ridding my family of the pain that my addiction was bringing into their into their lives as well two beautiful daughters and um, there I was on the 18th of August 2006 and I wasn't killing myself because something happened to me about 10 days before actually it happened to me about six months before my daughter was working as a ballerina for the Cairo Opera Ballet in Egypt and she rang me and uh, she rang me every Friday and she said to me, Dad, I need you to sit down. I've got something to tell you. I said, don't tell me you're pregnant. She said, no, 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 no. She said, I'm about to become a Muslim. And I said, are you kidding me? Don't even go there. What are you talking about? You're about to become a Muslim. Haven't you seen Not Without My Daughter? You live in the Middle East. Haven't you seen the way the women get treated? She said, yes, I have. And I still want to be a Muslim. Why? Why? And I got really angry. And she said to me, hang on for a minute. She said, before you start criticising my choices of faith, you tell me what you believe in. It's the biggest question anyone has ever asked me in my whole life. And as I thought... What can I say to my daughter at this time? I realised that I didn't have an answer. But I had enough from God to say to her, I need a week to think about this. And she said, good. So she said, are we cool now until next week? And I said, yes, give me a week to think about it. So that week was a busy week at work, flying across the Nullarbor, looking at the thunderstorms over over the Kalgoorlie area. Looking at the cliffs along the Nullarbor, looking at the Great Barrier Reef on a flight to Cairns, looking at my hands and wondering why my hands have got different fingerprints to my first officer. How come I can think fist and that happens? What is going on? All All the stuff that we all take for granted came into a golden frame in my mind. And the following Friday, I said to my daughter when I called her, I've come to a decision and she said, what's that? I said, I believe there is a God, but I don't like religion. I think religion is the business of God conducted by men and they're not very good at it. And I hold to that view today, my friends. And I've said this in hundreds of churches. We have distorted the image of God through corporatized religion. We really have. And so that day I made a decision that there must be a God. So what happened after that? My porn addiction continued. A few months went past. My daughter came back to live in Australia. And then one day my first wife and I had a horrible argument. She screamed at me. I couldn't believe the things she said to me although deep in my heart I felt I deserved them and I walked out of my garage in Brisbane after she abused me and I looked at the sky Now, while she's abusing me I'm thinking you just wait because in just a few days I'm going to be dead and you're going to be living in a whole world of grief. I was going to do it without writing a note because I wanted the insurance to pay out, I wanted my family to be well catered for. Half the male suicides in Australia are done just like that. How many times have you read a newspaper article a man was killed in a car accident, a single car accident where he ran into a tree. Authorities blame it on the black frost. And so I walked out of the garage that day and I looked at the sky having thought to myself any day now you're going to be sorry and I threw my arms open to the sky and I yelled out I can't do this anymore. And then I got in my car and I drove to a doctor's surgery to pick up my daughter who'd just come back from Egypt gone to the doctor. Bear in mind just minutes before I said just wait in a few days it'll all be over. And my daughter got in the car and she said, What's the matter, Dad? And I said, I can't be with your mother anymore. I just can't do this anymore. She said, What are you going to do? Six minutes earlier, you just wait. At that moment, I replied, I'm going to take 18 months to get my affairs in order. I'm going to go and rent a tin shed in the bush, build wooden furniture, and listen to John Williamson music. (laughs) What had shifted? between you wait to I'm gonna build furniture and listen to John Williamson in six minutes. I surrendered. I walked out, I looked up at the sky and I surrendered. And at that moment, it was like Jesus reached down and he said, that's really good, Graham, because I've got something better for you to do. Give me the remote control back. Let me take control of this. And he did. And he did. And uh, within two days, I was on a flight which was scheduled to be my last pattern of two flights, Brisbane to Perth, sit in Perth 24 hours, fly back to Brisbane, and then go into a bracket of days off where I was going to end my life on the 18th of August. On that flight, we departed through thunderstorms in Brisbane. It was a late night flight, the red eye. It was choppy. And I like to talk to people as you might have imagined. I like to get people to feel comfortable. I used to teach pilots how to do PA announcements on board the aircraft and I always said, never mind the businessman reading the financial review in the front row, always speak to the little old lady down the back who's never flown before. That's how I approached my evangelism, my reluctant evangelism. And so I made a few announcements to try and calm everybody down because there were lightning bolts going everywhere and the aeroplane was rocking and rolling and we were sitting up there laughing and thinking, oh, but they're all freaking out down the back. (laughs) And then uh, very late into the flight, it was very, very late. Everything was dark and I needed to go to the bathroom. And I got up out of my seat and I walked into the forward galley area of the Boeing and uh, the aeroplane was chock-a-block full. And I went to open the toilet door near the galley. Isn't it funny how they put a toilet next to a kitchen in an aeroplane? And as I went to open the door, the flight attendant said, no, 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 a lady's just gone in there, but she hadn't pushed the button across. And I said, oh, I said, I'm really busting, I need to go. I said, I'll go down the back. She said, no, don't don't go down there, they've all been drinking. It's a zoo down there, they'll eat you alive. (laughs) So, are you like that? Why are you laughing? And so, um, and then she said a strange thing. She said, don't worry though, she's worth waiting for. And I thought that was bizarre. And then she pushed the cart into the aisle and I'm standing there with my knees crossed like this and the door opened. And with the backlight of the bathroom behind us stood the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life, ever. And she looked at me and she said, are you the man who made those announcements? I said yes. She said thank you. You made me feel safe, and I said that's my job. As I pinched myself to take a breath, and we talked for fifteen minutes because the uh, I did go in and come back out again. <laughs> we talked for fifteen minutes because the flight attendant who said "Don't worry, she's worth waiting for" had pushed the cart into the aisle, and I couldn't go back into the cockpit because there was no one near to guard the door. Since 9-11 there's always got to be a crew member blocking the entrance to the flight deck. So damn it, I was stuck in the forward galley with the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen for 15 minutes on what was going to be my last flight. And we talked and she shared her pain and I shared mine. I told her about my pornography addiction. Can you believe it? I'm standing there in uniform, telling a passenger about my pornography addiction, and she told me about her sexual abuse as a child in a church. For six years, she was uh, raped and molested by a church elder as a child every weekend. And we shared that together. And and she shared some things about her life. You know, I said, you know, what are you travelling for? And she said. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing, I've just finished a law degree and I've just gone over to Brisbane to do some articles work and I'm going back to Perth. And I said, you've done a law degree, wow. And she said, yeah. I said, I'm really proud of you. And she said, yeah, look, you know, I've got three degrees. I've got nursing, uh, psychology and law. And I said, are you kidding me? She said, no, she said, um, and I've raised four kids on my own. And she was nursing all day, sorry, all night and then having two hours sleep and then going to university and studying all day. She did that for 13 odd years, 15 years nearly. And I said, I'm so proud of you. And she said, what are you talking about? Look at what you do. And I went, oh, shucks. (laughs) But that next day we met and we haven't been apart since. And I didn't take my life and she's the reason. you know what and I'm saying this to everybody I'm I'm talking to hundreds of thousands of people they say in Canberra up to 1.2 million nobody really knows and what I'm trying to do is give them the hope of Jesus because we live in very anxious times do we not we live in a time of turmoil of evil we are in locked in a battle between good and evil and I try I tell this story because I want you to know If you're new to church, if you're new to faith, if you're wondering what this Jesus stuff is all about, and many of you are, I want you to know that it's simple. First, you've got to come to a space in your heart where you believe there must be a God. Secondly, you have to surrender. And thirdly, you have to fasten your seatbelt and wait for what comes. Because if anyone had told me 16 years ago, that I would be doing what I've been doing in the last 12 months and standing in this beautiful church in front of you, I would have laughed at them. You know not the plans I have for you. Plans to give you hope, peace and a future. And Revelation 21.7 tells us, for he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his father and he will be my son. And I've been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian since I came to faith that's where God took me and in the Seventh Day Adventist Church they are very big on the Bible on the Bible only and they talk about the Seventh Day Sabbath and how sacred that is and they talk about the state of the dead in different ways there's different doctrinal interpretations between all of us But somebody preached a sermon to me on the first day when I took Michelle to one of those churches. I went as her bodyguard because church was never a safe place for her and going back to church was something she'd always wanted to do. And I walked into church as her bodyguard with my arms folded and I sat there just waiting for someone dare say something to her that was going to make her want to walk out. And then the pastor got up and he preached a sermon that went through my soul like a Mack truck. And I, look, I looked along the pews and I'm looking at everybody and I'm saying, this is amazing. Why are you guys all sitting there with your eyes closed and your mouths open? What's going on? Can't you hear what this guy's saying? And I said to Michelle, have you been talking to him about me? And she said, no, why? I said, he's speaking to my heart. And... The result of that was, so I can cut to the chase, six weeks later we both put our hands up to be baptised. I went from atheism to that in seconds. And my life has exploded with relevance ever since. And I have conversations. I've had some amazing conversations. It's very interesting when you've got four stripes on your shoulders and you're strapped in a five-point harness next to somebody for 12 hours and they've got no way of getting away from you. And they've got a a headset on and they can't even block you out. It's amazing the conversations you have. And so I would always fly with a new co-pilot who I hadn't known before and I'd say to him, when we leveled off and the autopilot was all set up and we're sitting there looking at the great, the great Australian bite unfolding, I'd say to him, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. No, 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 no. Fine's the weather forecast. How are you? <laughs> I do that with everybody and I build a reputation for doing it. I never once dragged a Bible out of my flight bag and built anyone over the head. I felt like if I'm going to impress anybody, I need to be the Bible that they read, not, not bashing them over the head. And so I found myself having conversations. When a guy would respond, well, you know, maybe I'm not doing all that good. You know, work's a pain. I've got to work really hard to make sure the kids have got everything they need. And when I do get time off, I'm always running around to football and ballet lessons and stuff like that. And we talk about stuff. And some of my older colleagues, after I'd seen Jesus, they said to me, you know, what do you think about the GFC? Or what do you think about... Um, you know, how's your superannuation travelling? I go, I don't know. Aren't you worried about your super? I said, no, my ex-wife got it. I don't have it to worry about anymore. <laughs> and, and then um, they'd say to me, you don't worry about much, do you? I said, yeah. Like, I'm looking at the radar and I'm wondering what you're going to do with that big thunderstorm that's just ahead of us. Oh, that thunderstorm. And we'd have these conversations. And one day a guy said to me, you've really changed, I've known you for 20 years and you've changed, what is it about you? I said, I've got faith, faith takes away the worry. And he said to me, surely you don't, you're not a born-again Christian, are you? I said, yes, I am. And he said, surely you don't believe in all that stuff. I said, why not? You believe in creation? I said, yeah, how come? Well, you believe in a big bang, that's just a theory. All the things that you hold true are theories, nothing's ever been really proven and I believe in creation because I make a choice to believe in it and then I just sit there, tune a radio, adjust the weather radar, look out, don't say anything and you see them shuffling in their seat and he wants to have the last say and he said I still don't get it. I said hang on, hang on, hang on Let me tell you what I think you believe in. You believe you evolved from slime. Your life has no purpose. And when you die, you're gonna be worm tucker. And he said, you got it. And I said, I believe I was created by someone who loves me. My life has a purpose. And when I die, I'm gonna go to heaven. And he said, he said, I get it. I get that. And then I turned and I looked at him and I said, who's gonna have a better day, you or me? and he just looked at me with his mouth open and I said look at the Bible the most published book on the planet in more varieties and and variations than any other book and yeah it's like Shakespeare, sometimes it's hard to understand but everybody raves about it but let's forget that this might be the inspired word of God and let's forget the fact that God is real it doesn't matter for the conversation we're having if you could stand with me at the end of time and say, look, see, I told you, there is no God. I'd say, well, you could have fooled me, but boy, I've had a great life. He started reading stuff because you can touch people's hearts if we keep it simple. We can touch their hearts. And I spent six weeks in Denver, Colorado, with United Airlines. I was sent over there on Succommon to look at what goes on when accidents happen. Human factors, they call it. And I listened to dozens of cockpit voice recordings, real ones, when people at the front end were about to die. Every single one of them, the word God was mentioned. Oh, God. God, help us. Oh, God, what have we done? Every single one. And some of the conversations before that, the guys were talking about their success in the hotel room the night before with a flight attendant but when trauma came God came into the picture and we're in this situation in our nation now on this planet where there is trauma because Satan's not even trying to hide the garbage that he's wanting to wreak on us now he doesn't have to because a lot of us have been suckered into believing it he's not even He's not even worried that we're a wake up to what he's doing. It's full on, and people are starting to see that. And the first rally I ever attended was on a Friday. It was a strike, a general strike nationwide. It was up at the the border of Queensland and New South Wales. And I had no idea what I was going to say. I was wearing what was left of my uniform with slogans written all over it. Gee, that makes Ellen Joyce angry. sorry Alan (laughs) he ain't happy but he's my brother he ain't happy but he's my brother he is because it's a lot easier to love somebody than it is to like them sometimes because we don't like their behaviour but underneath that behaviour there's a pain that drives it and we don't know that pain and we've got to love them Jesus says just love them so I go to this rally on the Friday and I walked up and I looked at 17,000 people and I prayed before I got up to the rostrum, whatever it is Lord, I, I have no idea what you want me to say and I said something like, you know what, uh, I've got no idea what I'm going to say but let me tell you this, I don't go anywhere without Michelle and I don't go anywhere without Jesus so I've got to open this with a prayer, I hope you don't mind and I prayed And 17,000 people yelled out, amen. And I thought, what? I just heard 17,000 amens and I didn't believe it. So I said, amen again. I said, amen. And those of you go to the rallies where I'm at, you'll hear me say it three times because people get right into it. And uh, then all of a sudden I realised that there was an audience out there that weren't that were probably more interested in Jesus than they were in me. And that's when I thought there's an opportunity here. So after that rally, which went very, very well, the organisers of Reclaim the Line contacted me and they said, we loved what you did at the rally. You know, I sang, I still call Australia home and all that stuff and got everyone crying. I've got shares in a Kleenex, in the Kleenex factory. So (laughs) that's how Michelle and I make our money. And then then, uh, they... They contacted me and they said, Look, we've organised a global Reclaim the Line rally and it's on this date. And I said, What day is that? What day is that? And they said, It's a Saturday. And I go, Oh, because I'm a Sabbath keeper. And I said to them, hmm, uh, I don't think I can do a rally on a Saturday. And they said, Why? And I told them my beliefs. I said, The fourth commandment. God said, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that's me. That's where I'm at. And they said, okay but you'd be doing good work you know you'd help people I said look I've got to pray about it I'll talk to Michelle I'll ring my pastor and I'll have a chat and I tossed and turned about it for a few nights and uh, they rang me back and they said are you going to do it and I said look no I can't and then they rang me back again 15 minutes later and they said we've changed the date to Sunday and I said why And they said because we want you to speak so you changed the date for my rally to Sunday no they said the whole world we've changed all the posters to the Sunday and then I thought well that's a sign from God wow so I go to speak at the, uh, at the rally on the Sunday and I turned and I thanked the organisers because I said because I, of my faith I wasn't going to rally on a Saturday and the organisers changed the date to the Sunday and I want to thank them for that and everybody cheered 25,000 people cheered because they changed the day I'm thinking this is crazy and then I prayed again and I said amen three times and everyone cheered and then I told a story of a man of faith I talked about Daniel in the lion's dead. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego isn't it amazing how those guys denied the mandates and God protected them isn't that amazing They survived the fiery furnace, the lion's den, because they denied the mandate with respect. They told Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, but no thanks. And God took them to a place where they could make people see him clearly through his actions in saving them. And isn't that what he's doing with you? And then that rally was fantastic. And then a call came. We want you to come to the rally in Sydney. There'll be 300,000 people. We need you to come and speak. I said, What day is it? They said, Saturday. I said, I'll let you know. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And one morning at two thirty I woke up bolt upright and I turned around, and I put planted my feet on the floor and I felt the hair standing up on the back of my neck. And Michelle said, What is it? I said, I think God wants me to go to Sydney for the rally on that Saturday because that's church, it's not a rally. And so we went. And I told stories of faith. I talked about a wonderful Christian called Desmond Doss. Have you seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? An amazing story of a soldier in Okinawa in World War II who suffered great persecution because he said he would never hold a rifle and he was called a coward and he was persecuted and he was beaten up and he was locked up and they wanted to throw him out of the army and he said, I'm not going. And at his court-martial, before they were about to throw him out, he said, is it so wrong with us tearing the world apart that one or two of us shouldn't be trying to put it all back together again? He said, I'll go, but do not I will not carry a rifle. Let me be a combat medic. And Desmond Doss went, and he went up Hacksaw Ridge, up a rope ladder. And he got to the top of the cliff, and the, 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 the ridge had been surrendered to the Japanese every day for a week. And the carnage was Unbelievable incredible I mean really gruesome and these men fresh out of the, the training camp were sneaking along in the smoke haze and then all hell broke loose and men were dropping everywhere and Desmond was running up to his members of his of his company and some of them were limbless and some of them were bleeding horribly and he'd give them morphine and, and they said Desmond don't leave me don't leave me and he said Don't worry, I'll come back for you. I'll come back for you. And he covered them with sand and he said, just stay there. I will come back, I promise you. And the day raged on and there were hundreds of men all over the battlefield, half buried in sand. Some were being lowered down the cliff face. And then the the counter-offensive came from the Japanese and Desmond was told to retreat with all the other soldiers on the ridge. And they were clambering down the ridge as the Japanese were charging them with flashing bayonets and machine guns. And Desmond was about to be the last one to go down and he looked back and he remembered all the men he'd left behind and he said, no way. And he hid near a rock and as darkness fell, he crept around the battlefield dragging these men out of the sand. And they said, Desmond, he said, I told you I wouldn't forsake you. And that night, he lowered one after the other down a 150-foot cliff face. The movie said he did that 75 times. In the book that he wrote, he said that he did it 150 times, even Japanese wounded. And every time he let someone down the cliff, the rope he was holding onto tore flesh off his hands. And as he lay there leaning back trying to break the fall and the blood was pouring along the rope and he'd finished and the rope was untied and he dragged it back up again, he lay there breathless and he looked at the sky and he said, just one more, just one more. And God gave him the strength to go back and get one more and one more and one more and one more. He was the only non-combatant, conscientious objector ever to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was a merely meek-looking little Seventh-day Adventist kid from the Midwest and he was a national hero because he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. That's in all of us. So now as I speak, I dare people to be Desmond. And I told that story at the Sydney rally in front of 350,000 people. And I said, I dare to be Desmond. And I said, I dare you to be Desmond. And I said, who wants to be Desmond with me? And 350,000 souls yelled out, Amen. So where does that leave you? so one rally after another I get told before I go up on stage by some organisers whatever you do don't pray and don't mention God if you ever want to light a fire under my butt don't tell me to do that don't ever tell me to do that and so I do and I use really colourful language like I've just been asked not to pray and not to mention God well if that's your If that's your bit and this is going to offend you, then stiff cheddar. Because I'll tell you this for a fact. if You you can have all the gold bullion and silver bullion. You can have all the food stored. You can have all the doomsday prepping stuff done. And you can feel secure. But if you don't know Jesus, you're toast. If you don't know Jesus, you're toast. And here's the thing. The people are starting to get the message. We've got a Hoodies Bible Study Network that's been set up for Zoom Bible Studies. There are people wanting me to do a baptism tour to go town to town and baptise people. There's a whole lot of things happening at rallies. I have people coming up to me and Michelle, hundreds of them. It happened in Perth yesterday. Who was at the rally in Perth yesterday? There were people milling around. I've had atheists come up to me by the dozens and virtually say the same thing you know I don't believe in God but unless I hear you pray at the end of the night on your lives I can't go to sleep and I say to them what does that tell you and people are asking questions it's incredible we're seeing people wandering around handing out um, doing literary evangelism from all different churches and denominations they're pouring this stuff out And people are grabbing it. I sat in a speaker's tent next to a soundstage and Craig Kelly was sitting there reading a book called The Great Controversy that he was given. And Michelle said, read the last six chapters before you read the rest. It'll really lock you in. And he said, really? And he said, yeah. And he was looking and he's going, oh. People are hungry for the word. They're hungry for what you've got. They're hungry for salvation. They don't know where to start. And I've been trying to get people to get into this word in a simple, practical way. I don't ever stand up and say, repent, because what I've realised is that I'm not so much a political activist, I don't even like that term, I'm a reluctant evangelist. I've become a reluctant evangelist. And why? Because I believe that Jesus is coming pretty soon. Amen. And I believe it's every one of our purposes to get as many people into that lifeboat as we can before he comes as many as we can and so for me it's quite simple how can you walk up to a stage and not pray and deny Jesus when you know in your heart he's the source of everything that you do how can you deny the power that drives you where you need to go you can't and he doesn't want you to And here's the other thing. When you put on the armour of God, and I claim uh, 1 Galatians uh, 10. Galatians 1.10, I'm sorry. For I speak to please God, not man. Because if I speak to please man, how can I please God? So how can I claim that, then put on the armour of God and be scared to mention it because I don't trust the armour I've just put on? He's going to protect me. And if I say something that upsets somebody... That's a shame, but I planted a seed. And there are times when people have been really annoyed that I planted that seed and they attack me. And how I get that seed to germinate is I love them. I just love them. The trolls are giving me everything they've got. And when I do respond to them, mostly it's to tell them that I really feel their pain. They must be living in a world of hurt and I love them. And that takes their power away. Because this I've learned as we've dealt with the adult victims of childhood sexual abuse for the last 16 years in our ministry, Mission Serenity. This I've learned. I learned it the day I saw Michelle forgive the man who molested her every weekend for six years as a child. She said to him, I've driven all the way across country to tell you that I forgive you. And he said, that's really good, Michelle. I want you to know I forgive you too because you were just as responsible as I was. And his hand was on the dagger handle as it was sticking out of her chest. And I grabbed him by the left shoulder. I nearly crushed his shoulder and I drew back a fist. I was so angry. And she looked at me and she said, no, 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 no. And she looked up and she said, God, give me strength. Then she grabbed the dagger and pulled it out and threw it away. And she looked him straight in the eye and she said, despite everything you just said, I still forgive you. And he looked at me. And he looked at her and she leaned over and kissed him on the forehead and she got up and walked away. And I saw something dark leave that man when she did that. He was powerless. He did everything he could to hang on to the remote control of her life just one more time. And she took it off him. And I came to a saying that day that I coined myself. I saw that grace and evil cannot live in the same place and evil is always the first to leave, always and I believe that to be as true in this situation we're in today as it was that day on Good Friday 2007 when Michelle did that that's the truth of the situation we're in so when somebody says to me oh man I really want what you've got but how am I going to get into it how do I get into this I don't even know who God is I've done it with my daughter I, I said look honey what's your picture of God oh he's a man in a big white robe he's got a long white beard and he's wandering around with a clipboard and a red pen and he's writing down all my misdemeanours because he's going to punish me one day and she said I don't believe I struggle to believe and I said well I don't believe in that God either that's not the God I see who is God I say go to 1 Corinthians 13 go there because the scriptures tell us that God is love and we were created to love and be loved. That's what we're here for. All this garbage we're living through in this country, in this state, in this planet would go away if we just loved each other. Yeah. So I got her to read the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. love keeps no track of wrongs. You've heard it at every wedding ceremony you've ever been to. And she said, I said, that's who God is. Yeah. I said, all right, now replace the word love with the word God. God is patient. God is kind. God keeps no track of wrongs. Ah. And I said, you know, if you go on this journey with God, he's going to want you to be more and more like him every day. Because he wants you to develop his character. So I said, now I want you to replace the word God with your name. You can do it. Graham is patient, Graham is kind. Oops, failed already. And then she said, Maybe God's not such a bad bloke after all. I said, You're right. He's beautiful. And then I talk about how you get to a position where you are, you can be patient and kind and keep no track of wrongs and do all those other things. And I take her then to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, the greatest sermon ever given. The Sermon on the Mount. And when we go through that, we realise that each one of those Beatitudes has to be completed before we have the power to go to the next one. Have you noticed that with the Beatitudes? First, you have to realise you are spiritually poor before you can get to the point where you mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I've never seen anyone at a funeral who's a grieving widow that I wanted to change places with. But it's about blessed are those who realise when they've broken their promise to God. And they feel alone. And I rang my pastor one day just to divert a little bit. And I said, Jeff, I'm really concerned. He said, what is it? I said, I haven't been connecting with God. I feel like I'm a thousand miles away from him. And he said, how do you feel about it? I said, I feel wretched about it. He said, thank God for that. I said, why? He said, because if you weren't concerned about it, I'd be worried. That's the key. So he doesn't move. So I ran back to him and I got better again. Every day I need to do that. And so... Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, is the recipe to be a person who can live into 1 Corinthians 13. And then the next clincher for most people coming to Christ is the Ten Commandments. How many times have you heard them say, I'm lost, there's no way on earth I will ever be able to live into those commandments. But when you say to them, hang on, mate, what, what if this is not a law that's designed to judge and punish you? What if it's a law that's set up like a design law, like the law of gravity, that tells you if you function by these 10 basic rules, your body, your spirit and your soul will function just as God designed it. So what if it's not a means to have people crawling around in the dust and feeling wretched? What if it's a means of getting us to a place where we don't have to do that? You think about it, you know, when, when uh, the 10 commandments talks about coveting, When you covet something, you're not at ease, are you? You're not satisfied. And when you're not satisfied, you do things that bring you to sin. The first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving your neighbour as you love yourself. And in half an hour, you can get people to a stage where they think, right, I get this. I'm going to get into this. I can do this. And one day on the veranda of our farm, One of our neighbours came up with his wife to have a cup of tea with Michelle and I and we're sitting on the veranda and he's an atheist and he's happy to admit it. And he said to me, I'm a bit miffed, I really think you guys are intelligent and you're incredible people, but I don't get how you can believe in the Bible. And he knew the Bible better than I did. Isn't it funny how a lot of atheists know the Bible better than we do? And he's quoting verse after verse saying, look how it contradicts itself all over the place. And Michelle was doing what, Most people do when that happens. They try and alter the course of the thinking so they can get to see that that's not how it is, da-da-da. And he kept counteracting with more contradictions and it started to escalate. And I sat there thinking, how are we going to deal with this? And I said to him, hang on, hang on. I can see why you're confused. You know what, I'm confused too. I said, there's a lot of stuff in this book that I don't really get yet. But the bits out of it that I do get live in my heart and it makes me feel better. And he said, like what? Well, it teaches me how to love, even though sometimes I don't like. He said, what? I said, yeah, in your case, for example, (laughs) there are times when I don't like you, but I still love you. And he said, "How how can you possibly love somebody you don't like? I said, you do. He said, I do not. I said, you do. Who? Your son. You don't like your son's behaviour. You spend a lot of time criticising him. But if he walked through your door today, you'd hug him, just like the prodigal son. And he started to cry. And I said, you know what, if at the end of the day, my faith gets me to live in that space where I can love you, even though there are times when I don't like you, then what, can, what harm can be done? And he said, you know what, you're right. So where are we, my friends? Two minutes left to go on the clock. Where are we now? People asked me yesterday as they do at every rally. What does victory taste like? My answer is look around you. There it is. We've already won. We've already won. The people in the movement that's building around us, the Hoodies Heroes movement, are people from all walks of life, triple jabbed, no jab, one jab, never getting jabbed. Doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I had a man hug me in tears at the border up near Queensland and he was crying like a baby and he sobbed into my shoulder and my shoulder was wet with his tears. And I said to him, what's the matter? And I do that at the rallies, I hug people and I don't wanna let them go until they share a bit of themselves you know it's pretty draining but I've got a very patient wife too who doesn't mind that I'm hugging people and I said to him what is it and he said I've hung on for 18 months but he said "Uh, if I didn't get the jab then I wasn't going to be able to feed my family and he said I actually took it first one yesterday and I um, I told the family, my wife and kids, now I'm doing it so you don't have to. I'll earn enough money to feed us all, so don't you guys dare get it, but I'm getting it. And he said, I feel like a coward. And I said, would you take a bullet for your family? He said, I would. I said, well, you just did. You got jabbed even though you felt that you were gonna put your life at risk because you wanted to feed your family. You're not a coward, you're a hero. And I grabbed him by the shoulders as um, off likely to do and I held him out and I said, look into my eyes. I said, you're a hero. And the tears were flooding. And his wife came up and put her arm around him and she said, you know what? He's right, you are a hero. So Hoodie's Heroes, it's not about me, it's about you. You're here today wanting to know Christ at a greater, deeper level. That makes you a hero. You turn up at rallies. You're gonna vote on Saturday. You're gonna try and work it out so that we get some freedoms back. You're gonna remember the cross as a symbol of what was surrendered for our freedom, not only on the hill of Calgary, but also on foreign battlefields where 100,000 white crosses mark the graves of our forebears who said that we should never have to rally for freedom in our own country. So that's where we're at. What do we do with it? Where do we go with it? Ask God. He'll tell you. I struggle. Michelle will tell you. There are times when I just want to pull a blanket over my head when I wake up in the morning and I don't want to come out. And she said, what is it? And I say, why me? Why me? Broken. Suicidal. No destiny. No future. No identity. 16 years ago. I haven't been to a university. I left school when I was 13, never attended a high school class after my 13th birthday. I haven't been to a a seminary to study the word of God. But this much I know, my friends. 2000 years ago, a man I'd never met died the worst, most excruciating death on a cross so a filthy porn addict like me could have a second chance. He won my heart. And all I say to people is, I've never been to a seminary or a university or I've never studied the Bible at the depth of a lot of you. All I know is this, once I was blind, and now I can see. So now when I say, why me? A little voice in my right ear says, why not? Why not you? So I mess it up a lot. Sometimes I misquote scripture. Sometimes I drop a clangor. Comes with being an Aussie. But he forgives and he dusts me off and he prepares me for the next rally or the next interaction like the one at the end of the rally yesterday. Michelle and I drifted off away from the crowd waiting for a friend to pick us up and we're sitting on a ledge of a shop window and this disheveled man who was reeking of alcohol walked up to us and he said, have you got cash for a meal? And, uh, and we were going like this, you know. these days you don't carry cash. I said, no, I'm sorry, we don't. I said, that's all right. And he walked off and Michelle said, oh, hang on, I've got 10 bucks in my phone. She pulled. I said, give it to me. And I ran up the alleyway where he was walking. I said, wait, wait, wait. And he turned and looked at me and he said, what is it? I said, we found $10. I'm sorry, it couldn't be more. He said, no, 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 you, you'll, if that's all you've got, I don't want it. No, 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 I want you to have it. And I said, no, 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 God wants you to have it. And he took it from me, he said, really? And I said, yeah, and I gave him a hug. And I walked away and he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, but how did you know? He said, I can see it in you and I looked at him and I said do you realize how valuable you are in the eyes of Jesus and he started to cry and then the car arrived and we got in the car and drove away they're hanging to know Jesus they're dying to know Jesus don't hide your light under a basket dear Lord Father in heaven as I look at this congregation as I look at these people I see couple of hundred of reluctant evangelists ready to be the Bible that some people may see as the only Bible I've ever read and I want you to look into their hearts Lord and I want you to say to them why not you and I want you to give them the power and the words and the belief in the armour that you give them to wear that it will deflect all the arrows and bullets that come at them and that in that strength they will lead people to the boats and they will man the boats for that glorious day when you come on a white cloud in the east and take us all home. This is our calling and theirs.